Welcome to the Leading on Purpose podcast with Jackie, where you will hear stories of passion, purpose, and leadership designed to inspire you to live your best life. So let's get started. Dear God, thank you for everyone that is listening to this podcast and for our guest. I ask that you give everyone favor and help them live their best life. Keep this in mind. You will never influence the world by being just like it. So be yourself, be authentic, because the world needs you. Now let's hear from our guest. I am pleased to have my amazing guest with me today, and that is Clarence Nunn. Clarence is going to talk about diversity at the C-suite level, and I'm super excited. I've known Clarence for quite some time since our college days, so I'm excited to have him here. So how are you doing, Clarence? I'm fine and and happy, healthy, so it's always great to be able to catch up with good friends yeah. like you, so I'm, I'm excited about uh, the podcast. Well, awesome. So, so Clarence, um, we're, we're early 2021, but um, we can't stop talking about 2020. So in 2020, what was the most entertaining activity that you participated in during 2020? We know there wasn't a whole lot, but how did you make some fun in 2020? <laughs> you know, it's, it, you are absolutely right. Not much we could do. Um, one, of, um, one of the joys that I have. It's really two, right? It's uh, I like fishing. So I like being outside and doing mindless thing. And then the other passion I have is around cars. So I didn't do much fishing uh, in 2020, but uh, I have a passion around cars, exotic cars. So a good friend of mine, he and I will go out and take social distance, right? And and could take uh, uh, the Ferraris out for a lap or two. So that was always fun. And, and we'd find some time to do that when work wasn't uh, keeping us bogged down. Oh, cool. So out driving those fast cars. <laughs> of course, at the speed limit. Yeah. <laughs> very, very cool. That's actually a safe thing to do in, in 2020. Very, very nice. So um, Clarence, can you share with the listeners a little bit about your career journey? So this is the journey that uh, is ongoing. It's uh, just over 30 years. I'll, I'll talk about kind of post San Diego State. I was I was in the NFL long enough for about a cup of coffee. So it wasn't, it wasn't a long stint there. After being released twice, I knew I'd have to get a real job. So I went to work for a company called James River, which was a paper manufacturer out in Southern California. And so uh, that was really, when I think about career, that was really the first job. I was a sales rep. Uh, representative and was uh, working through a distribution company selling industrial towel and tissue. So think toilet paper and, and paper towels. And so I did that for the better part of three years. And I got a call from a headhunter who I still talk to today, but I've never met. Wow. And he talked about an opportunity uh, at GE, General Electric. And so after a series of conversations, I decided to take the leap and I moved from Southern California uh, to Portland, Oregon. Uh, and I took a sales job at GE Plastics. And so I spent the better part of uh, 12 years, actually 14 years on the what we call the industrial side of the firm. Uh, and that was in sales and marketing and product management roles. Uh, I did two Six Sigma jobs uh, I moved all over the country. Um, by the time it was all said and done, and I put the 24 years at GE, I had moved 12 times. But the second half of my career at GE was on the financial services, GE capital side. And so that to me was a better fit. I was an undergraduate business major uh, and an MBA. And although I was working on uh, the industrial side of the firm, I was working with lots of engineers. Engineers are great people, and, and but it just wasn't what my passion was. And so moving over to financial services, when you get to live in a little better locations, um, I moved from places like Pittsfield, Mass, and Albany, New York, to start to be in some of the downtown locations of big cities. So the first job I got as senior vice president in sales and marketing uh, was in Montreal, Canada. And I was responsible for all of Canada for the commercial bank. And so um, spent two years, the better part of two years there. The next opportunity was in Chicago. I was there for four years, two different jobs as a general manager of a business unit. Uh, and then we acquired the Royal Bank of Canada's uh, portfolio um, and then Doyle, uh, Deutsche Bank 
Bombardier, Transamerica. Uh, that portfolio sits in Wells Fargo today. Uh, and I had an opportunity to work in that business. And then I got my first CEO job at GE Capital Fleet Services. Uh, and that was probably even to date one of the most exciting jobs I had just because it was your first CEO job. And it's your first um, opportunity where you are now responsible for everything. Right? So it's one of those, you could always be the number two or the number three person, but the buck stopped with you in this particular role. And I truly enjoyed it. It was, uh, I remember it was like yesterday, I went into that job in December of 2008. Uh, it was right on the cusp of us going in through the financial crisis. I was heavily dependent on Ford, GM and Chrysler as the supply base. So G Capital Fleet Services, think company cars and service vans for all the major companies that you can think of. And so, so it was a very exciting opportunity. And then I was asked to move to our headquarters location uh, in Connecticut. And so I left that job. I went to a headquarters job uh, as chief commercial officer. And in that particular role, this was one was there were 13 business units. Fleet Services was one of the 13 I was a CEO of. And in this business, it was probably from a headcount standpoint, was probably the largest organization I'd ran. It was probably roughly 8,000 people or so. Of the 13,000 that were in the business, 8,000 of those were under my responsibility. And so in that role, I worked with all the CEOs on really sales, marketing, banking, product strategy, uh, with the intent that uh, when there was one thing that was missing in my resume was uh, structured finance. And so when that next structured finance CEO job would come open, um, then I, that would be my job to have. And so as luck would have it, I was 14 months in the job, that opportunity came open and I moved from Connecticut to, Connecticut to Scottsdale, Arizona to become the president and CEO of GE Franchise Finance. Uh, and that was another exciting opportunity, but two years or so into that job, G Capital decided to sell all the capital businesses. Mm. And so uh, the way the process worked was that if you were a um, capital business that was supporting the industrial businesses, there was an opportunity uh, that that business may stay with the company. But for the most part, most of those businesses were sold. And so um, um, it took several months for us to get that done. It was probably one of my uh, toughest leadership assignments. We could probably come back to that later. I'll, I'll share with you some stories around that. But once that was said and done, it was really an opportunity for me to rethink um, you know, what I wanted to do next. So the option would go back to the industrial side of the firm, GE, which I wasn't very excited about doing. So the opportunity presented itself to uh, do something new, uh, which was join a large bank, which was J.P. Morgan Chase, which is where I am today as a managing director and segment head of the southeastern part of the U.S. for the commercial bank. And so um, it was interesting in the sense that there was a lot of familiarity with middle market banking. So think about revenue companies from 20 million to 500 million plus. Um, I knew that part of the business um, from the perspective of a financial services company, but not from a banking aspect. So one of the challenges, I wasn't a licensed banker. So I had to go get my series uh, 79 and my series 63, which, uh, which uh, then qualified me as a licensed banker. And, and then I have to take a very unfair test, which is the series 24, which allows you <laughs> to actually uh, lead licensed bankers. And so, um, so that was a that was a lesson in the sense that Jackie, that, um, you know, you have to always continuously learn. And so really for me going through that and what we would call probably, you know, really middle stages of a career was really enlightening and very challenging, but was also very rewarding. So I've been doing this for the last four years, really enjoying what I'm doing and, and really looking forward to whatever that next uh, gig will be. But what you'll find as you, go through these ebbs and flows of a career, um, someone were to look at my resume, you would see I was promoted just about every two years or so. And one would could easily surmise from that, that wow, everything was great, it was easy, you promoted every two years, but 
but there was a lot of bumps in the roads and, and I'm sure we'll get into some of that later in this discussion. Uh, but that's uh, that's kind of a quick trip around uh, my career since uh, leaving San Diego State. Yeah. So, you know, Clarence, thank you for sharing that with the listeners. Certainly um, a tremendous career that you've had, a lot of opportunity leading up to, you know, 8,000 people is absolutely outstanding. And in your career, in this career journey, um, Clarence, how many times have you moved in total? I know you said in 12 years, 24 times. Is that what you said? Is that, so it was I get 24 that? years, it was 12. So I'm now at, uh, on uh, my 14th move. There were really two driving factors for me as I thought about all of these moves. One, we had made that commitment. So we were now all in. And so we had to go from depending on two salaries to one. Uh, the second driving force behind that, um, I'll age myself to your listeners a little bit, but I was born in 1964. As you know, the Voting Rights Act wasn't until 1965. So for many of our parents, they couldn't legally vote in this country when we were born. And that always drove me in the sense that as I thought about the opportunities that I would have versus the opportunities they had, right, the arrogance for me to say, no, I don't want to move or I'm not going to take this promotion was absurd, so for me, once I made that bat, wife's going to stay home, we're all in, and then try to seize these opportunities. Then it was really clear that once an opportunity presented itself, if it worked for me, if it worked for the family, we saw a path that said this would lead to something else without any guarantees, then we took it. And so I think one of the valuable lessons around moving will be understanding what the big picture is. Yeah, that's so you, you're right, Clarence. I, I didn't want to ask you, like, when did you know you wanted to, to lead at the highest level? And, and you just you just shared that it, it wasn't like you joined a company and said, I want to be a CEO, you just you really looked at the opportunities. And you were what I'm hearing you say you were flexible, and you took advantage of those opportunities that were given to you. And I wouldn't say given to you. I know you had to work hard for them, very hard, but you just took advantage of doors that opened for you. You know, what's interesting, um, my grandiose plan was when we moved from Southern California, I'm from Southern California, my wife's from Southern California. So the plan was once we moved up to Portland, Oregon, just getting back, getting back to Southern California was the plan. And so I had someone that's Actually, still a mentor today, but probably more peers, just where our careers have gone. But at the time when I moved back to Southern California, uh, he was my boss, was the general manager. I think of the general manager in the sales organization. And so there was plenty of opportunities in Southern California, and one in particular I was interested in. And we had just done my we had just done my business review, and everything was fine. I was rated well. I was happy with the raise that I got. And the opportunity I wanted, he told me I couldn't have. And so I was really confused initially by that response going, well, wait a minute. Was he not telling me the truth in these reviews? And he said something that, you know, that was really enlightening for me today, which was, no, you need to go back to our headquarters location and you need to go meet some people there. So we went from living in Redondo Beach, California to moving to Pittsfield, Massachusetts. And mm. there's probably very few of your listeners can pick that out on a map. Yeah, you, I couldn't. It's flying to Albany back in that day. You get off on the, uh, the open runway, you walk down the stairs, and then you drive uh, west uh, for a very long time on a very small highway. But the point was, when you got back to headquarters, there were a couple of things that were revealing to you. One... Uh, every headquarters location, oftentimes that's where a lot of the big decisions get made. And so for two, it was eye-opening to be able to go in and really start to see more of the company, build more of a network. I know we're going to get into mentors and sponsors, but all of that stuff starts to happen at a headquarters location. And particularly for black and brown employees, oftentimes we get um, you know, fall in love with a general location and then don't want to move. And then they want to hold the company accountable for still growing their career, but yet they have these constraints. And I'm not saying that you can't do it in a single location, but I also think you limit your opportunities if you don't have that flexibility, as you had mentioned. Yeah, and you said flexibility. So, so you started talking a little bit about, you know, someone that has helped you, your previous manager, but what are some of the leadership lessons that you have learned across your career, Clarence? What are some of the leadership lessons? You know, there's, um, I know we only have 35 minutes and we could probably go on for days on this particular <laughs> topic. Um, 
One of the things that well, I'll share a few. Um, one that I think is really important is that you can't define your success based on what others are doing. Oftentimes, someone will look and say, wow, that person's pretty young. They already have that job. Or, um, hey, we're in an organization. How did that person get the job? And I'm more qualified. So to me, those are just distractions. So two things. One, you have to define your success by your own definition. And two, do not measure your success based on someone else's career. Those things are really important uh, to keep you from getting distracted. Um, as you become more senior, and particularly, again, these are my experiences, but as you can probably imagine, and you know this very well, working at corporate America, there's a lot of type A personalities and people are eager to move ahead. And so some of the other advice that I got that was really good was when in charge, be in charge. And so when it's your call to make, always get your team members involved, always collect the data, as much data as available in the time frame in which you need to make the decision. But ultimately, you have to make the decision, whether that's on a business strategy, whether that's on people. Uh, I think some of the failures of leaders, oftentimes, they don't move quick enough on underperforming employees. And so again, there's a very humane way to do that. And, and you should take all those appropriate steps. And companies spend a lot, of pe a lot of money hiring people. So you should go out of your way to try to make sure that you can get people up to speed to be able to deliver uh, at expectations. But in the event that they can't get there, then you as a leader are responsible for taking the appropriate action. And why that's important is because if you don't take the action when you're in charge and you're, and, but you're not being in charge, the whole team sees that. Mm -hmm. And, and it starts to drain on the morale and they're going, well, why should I be working this hard? Cause Joe or Jill's not working as hard. Uh, Clarence knows this, why isn't he doing anything about it? So, so that becomes very problematic. Um, and then one of the other lessons, it's kind of more of a saying that and my parents said it quite often, said people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. So I think being an empathetic leader and then making sure that, yeah, you can have passion and energy about the job that you're doing. But at the end of the day, and the, one of the things that drives me crazy when I hear about headcount or heads, right? No, these are not headcount. These are not heads. These are people and these are people's lives. Mm -hmm. So when you're making decisions um, strategic decisions for the business, you always have to keep in mind what's for the greater good of the organization, but also know that on an individual basis, you're making these decisions that impact people's lives. And so making sure they understand uh, that you care, even when delivering a tough message is really important. Clarence, you said so many good things in, in just answering that question. One, I just want to unpack a little, a couple of things I want to unpack a little bit. One about the distractions, when you said that not looking at what other people are doing, like their age and what role they're in, that is so key because the longer you're in your career, there are going to be people younger than you in roles that, you know, are maybe even higher than your level. And so you're right, that is absolutely a distraction. It absolutely is. The other thing I want to comment on is what you said about empathy. That is so key because when you are empathetic and you really care about people, you can actually hold them even more accountable. So it actually opens the door for greater accountability, even if you do have to have those tough um, conversations. So I love what you said. I mean, love that. You know, Jack, um, one of the things that's really interesting, um, and, and oftentimes people don't think about it as a distraction, but it's certainly that particularly being a, a minority. Oftentimes people spend too much time wondering what people think about how they got to a particular role. And so uh, my experience has been simply this. If for some reason you are lucky enough to get in a job you're not qualified for, it'll take about a quarter for you to figure it out. And it'll take about two quarters for the rest of the organization to figure it out. So, <laughs> so don't get distracted about whether you're qualified for a job or not. Um, uh, or what other people are thinking, or you were a diversity hire, all those other distractions. I see too many leaders struggle with that, right? Focus on the job, focus, focus on delivering consistently. And, and then what people like is a consistent leader. So high stress, low stress, happy times, tough times, they want consistency. And so 
we've all been in those situations. Oh, the boss is in a bad mood. What, you know, there's just no place for that. And when you're focused on the task at hand. And so I think that when a big part of leadership is that, um, and we used to hear it at, at GE all the time, it says, someone says, well, have you ever had a bad boss? And if you haven't, you will, right? So, <laughs> but there's an opportunity there to, as you're, um, as you're figuring out your own leadership style, how do you uh, glean from other people what you would like to adopt, right? Uh, and, and into your own style, but it has to be authentically you. So, um, so there's an opportunity here as you see other leaders, you like something about that leader, adopting that into your style where you can personalize it so you can stay an authentic leader those are key things. So even when there is that bad boss, there are some things that you will learn through that experience uh, that will help you continue on your own career journey. Absolutely. And you know, and just going back real quick to what you said too about the distractions, because if you let those things distract you, like people being concerned, you being concerned about whether they think you were selected because you're a minority or because someone else has a role, you're, I mean, you will not show confidence. I mean, if you're thinking about those things, you won't show up, you won't be yourself and you won't be confident. And that's just going to hurt you. Absolutely. So moving to the next question, um, Clarence, about mentors and um, sponsors. So how do you define mentors versus sponsors and how have they played a role in your career? You know, that's, that's, um, that's a really, really important, good and important question. So, so my definition around mentors are really people that can help you think through um, various situations. And so one of the things I was just on with 75 of our analysts last Friday, just kind of walking through, and this is kind of the entry level, there's the junior folks in our business before they go through their rotations, we have this very discussion. And so one of the key things about mentors, right, you have to pick wisely, because as you know, I go back to this type A personality, everybody has an opinion, and oftentimes in corporate America, they're often willing to share it. That doesn't mean it's right. And so what you have to do in, in a mentor relationship, whether it's formal or informal, you really need to understand what are the strengths and weaknesses of that mentor. So depending on the problem that you're trying to solve, you need to have a broad enough mentor network so you can go get varying opinions and then you have to make it your own because ultimately back to when in charge, be in charge, ultimately whatever decisions you make, you need to live with. The other piece about mentors is that you have to close the loop. Oftentimes, Mentors are given advice, but no one closed the loop. So they don't know if what they gave you was accurate. And so so being selective around that process is very helpful. And so I usually use mentors in three ways. Um, And it's changed a bit over time, but it's usually three ways. Sometimes there's a problem and I can't figure my way out. There's just a group that I will call and say, hey, I need you to help me think through this one. I haven't figured this one out yet. There's a group that I will call and say, hey, I think I've pretty much got the solution. Want to run it past you and get your input. And then there's a third group. I try not to use this one that often is where it's like, I need to vent. I don't need you to say anything. (laughs) Your help right now is just a set of ears. And so I just need you to just hear me out. And so uh, but I really think that that mentor relationship, if you pick that right, a lot of people refer to them as board of directors, your personal board of directors, picking that group and understanding their strength, not having them all within your company. Uh, all of those things are really, really important. If we pivot to sponsors, uh, again, the, my definition of a sponsor, this is someone that will put their own credibility on the line on your behalf. This is a, you need to hire Jackie. And if Jackie fails, I fail. And I'm going to make sure that she doesn't fail. And I'm going to be committed to the role that I'm saying that you should put her in and you'd be crazy not to do it. So there is a very different set of rules and guidelines and commitment, in my opinion, when you think about sponsors versus mentors. And, and quite honestly, some people will go out uh, an entire career without having a sponsor. So you, so it's not imperative that you have one um, uh, to continue to progress your career, 
but it's certainly very helpful. And here's the thing. You want to get to the point where you're not seeking sponsors or mentors. They're seeking you. Everybody that I know in the C-suite is always looking for that diamond in the rough, right? You know, part of what C-suite is all about is finding talent. I talk to my leaders all the time about a coaching tree. A coaching tree is just quickly, I try not to use a lot of sports analogies, but if you think about a head coach and that head coach have a bunch of assistant coaches and in a coaching tree is like off that tree, how many other head coaches came out of that organization? So quickly uh, for a direct report to me, they know that they have to have a substantial coaching tree. They have to be able to recruit talent. They have to be able to retain talent. They have to be able to promote talent. And so if you can do those three things, and that will enhance your coaching tree, and that will allow the organization to get better. And those are the things that are really important. And sponsors and mentors play a very critical role in that coaching tree. Yeah. Yes. Clarence, you're selling, you are sharing so many good nuggets. It's, it's incredible here. So one thing that you said that I have to admit I'm guilty of with the mentors is not always going back to them and letting them know the impact that they had on, on what they shared with me. And I love the three different groups of mentors that you have. I love that. That's such a great example. So I'm going to have to go back to some of my mentors and let them know that their advice was good. <laughs> or if it, was, if it wasn't good, I'll let them know. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> That's important too. <laughs> so, um, you know, as you know, this, this title of this podcast is diversity at the C-suite level. So as a man of color, I'm sure that you have, you have faced obstacles along your journey. Why don't you share some of those obstacles and how you have overcome them? You know, you know, one of the, the things about distractions, um, it can come in many forms. And sometimes those obstacles are uh, those obstacles are people just trying to trip you up. And so um, and sometimes it's intentional and other times, you know, maybe it was a legitimate mistake. So but there's been countless. I was I was the CEO of a business um, and I won't say which one or, or, or which client. But one of the things that we would do that. Uh, we had a Fortune 50 client, um, and what we would do is with those clients, our biggest clients, we would bring them to our headquarters location, and we'd go through their contracts with them in terms of we were implementing things on their behalf, and it was always uh, you know, a, a long couple of days, but going through and having that, um, that team meet my team and being able to share best practices to make sure that we're doing the best thing that we can to serve that client. And I remember, like it was yesterday, I remember my schedule was pretty packed and I told the team to go ahead and get started um, without me. And so I remember walking into the meeting and it was a little quiet as they were taking a pause. I kind of waved to the team, keep going because I didn't want to be disruptive to the meeting, but that the next break, then they introduced me as the CEO of the business. And so um, needless to say, I was the only African-American in a room of about, um, I'd say it's 50, 75 people or so. And so the most senior person from that client was just shocked. And so he had the pause. He said, well, you're the CEO. I was like, yes, I'm the leader of the business. He's like, of the whole thing. And I said, Yes, I'm the same. And so at this point, it became very uncomfortable for, for, my, um, uh, for my employees. And so, but those are the things where, and again, that, that was subtle, but we knew what it was. The key is not to let those things shake you or throw you off your game. Oftentimes, bringing levity to it kind of eases um, um, uh, kind of the sting of that. And then oftentimes you got to take a harder charge. I remember being in Florida and unfortunately, oftentimes when you're in Florida, I'm at a big global meeting. Oftentimes the people that are at that meeting are serving or servers at the meeting, right? Or working for the hotel. And I remember walking in uh, to um, the, after, just before dinner, so cocktails before dinner, I remember walking into the boardroom and one of my colleagues uh, that was junior to me because I was an officer of the firm, which was the highest rank you could go at GE. This person was, you had to be at least senior executive to be at this meeting. So he was a senior executive, I later found out, not that that's important, but I was, the point was I was higher, I was higher rank uh, than him. I was actually in a CEO job. 
So I walk in the ballroom and he looks over at me and asks if I could go get him a cocktail. <laughs> so he just assumed that I was one of the waiters. <laughs> and so, so, so that's not a time where you use levity. And so I said, certainly you can have a drink and you go get somebody that works here. So at this point now, he's just mortified that he just made this assumption or prejudged me because I was African-American walking into that room. And so, you know, for me, it's one of those where when it happens to you, you can't always control how it happens, when it happens, but what you can control is how you react to it. And, and my recommendation has been, and what's worked for me, is that don't overreact to it. Um, match the, um, your response with the level of, um, I guess, match your response to the level in which it was directed at you. So was it was it more hostile? Was it was it was were they trying to be you know offensive, or was it just a subtle mistake? And so I think it's also an opportunity to educate. And so I think this is one again, it's a subtle approach, um, but there's opportunities to educate. So same meeting, right? This was one hell of a week. <laughs> same meeting. I was in Boca Raton, Florida. I didn't want to go golf with the other guys because, as Andre knows, I'm still a terrible golfer. And so we decided to go into town to just kind of walk around, do some shopping or, or whatever. And it was me and, and three white colleagues, all males. So we're walking down the street, African-Americans coming towards us, and we speak to each other, the African-American and I. So immediately as we pass by, they go, hey, do you know him? And I said, no, I said, oftentimes, African-Americans, we just acknowledge each other. And so I said, now, now that you brought it up, I said, oftentimes, African-Americans, when we're in a, a conversation and we're meeting people for the first time, we often say, hey, where are you from? And, you know, where's your hometown? I said, what I've noticed that oftentimes white males will say, hey, what do you do? And so I just took that as an opportunity. One, I felt good that they were comfortable enough to raise it. Mm -hmm. But I also thought it was my responsibility to educate them on why we do certain things. And so I often spend time with what we call business research groups, BRGs, or affinity networks within our business, right? Not only are they responsible for driving diversity and having that conversation within the four walls, I believe there's a um, responsibility to educate on cultural biases and cultural norms to help us get a better understanding of each other, right? We all have goals and objectives in the code of culture for the firm, but you can't, you know, spend so much time trying to assimilate into the company's culture that you lose some of that individuality, uh, which is probably why the company hired you in the first place. So striking that delicate balance um, it's really important. And people that can help you strike that balance are certainly mentors and mentees. And certainly make sure that your mentors and mentees look more like, you know, United Nations than just one particular group is really important. Absolutely. Yeah. So Clarence, um, you know, there's something that I'm really clearly picking up from you and it, it obviously has led to your success and how comfortable you are in dealing with um, various situations, how good you are at not letting things be distractions. And so how, what can you attribute to you being that way? Like you, the example earlier on where you said like not letting people um, who are doing different things in the company and wondering how they got there be a distraction or just like these, you know, several incidents that you just shared with me here, not letting it ruin your day or get you so upset that you respond in a way that's not very positive. So how are you able to manage your, your behavior and your response to these situations? You know, it's, it's interesting. I'll answer the question this way. One of the, one of the challenges I had to face, right. Was when, when the sports were over, Right. So if you think about playing high school at the highest level, then getting a, a, a division one scholarship and then, you know, you go to the NFL and then before you know it, it's over. So making that transition, it was important that I could I could channel that energy back into something that I could compete against. And so being able to compete was really what drives me. So in terms of distractions, I was a cornerback. Right. So the way to get beat for another touchdown is think about the last touchdown you got beat at. 
where you think about the amount of trash talk that happens in any sporting event. So I always bridge those two things. So when I see that distraction, hey, go get me a drink, there's countless other stories I could share with you. I won't bore you in the audience, but I've always viewed that as just trash talk. So now I'm going to show you. Okay. You're in trash talk. Now I'm going to show you who's in charge, why I'm going to get the top sales job, whatever that may be. I found it as motivation. So, so to, to me, I take that negative energy and then turn it back and then use it as a reason to fuel that next thing, whatever that's driving it and whatever that thing is that I'm passionate about. So that's how I've, I've dealt with it. And look, I've had friends that deal with it in other ways. Um, but that's what's worked for me. That's, that's an excellent example is it's very clear that you're very good at it. So, you know, Clarence, um, you know, unfortunately we're still at a place in our society where there's still very few women as well as relatively low, you know, number of women and minorities at the C-suite level. What advice can you give to individuals that are aspire to, to move up to the C-suite level, women and minorities? No, I, th- I think that's, again, another, <clears throat> excuse me, excellent question. You know, one of the things that everyone could easily get tripped up on is chasing titles. And one of the things that's interesting about the banking world, everybody's a vice president, right? Nobody wants a, you know, a, a general manager managing the money, right? At the end of the day, you want somebody that has at least a vice president title. So what that tells you is that titles don't mean everything. So I, I always recommend don't chase titles, chase experiences, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Don't chase titles, chase education. So I've been fortunate enough where San Diego State, the deal was I played football for them. They give me a free education. Uh, my deal with GE was I can work for you and then they pay for my executive MBA. And so holding each other accountable is, is, is really important. So when you think about that journey, you're going to run into some bad managers, right? But that experience is only bad if you didn't learn anything from it. So I think that every role that I take, I always go into it saying, well, what do I bring immediately? And then whatever that time horizon is, and I can tell you over the course of every move that I've made, there was always more to do in each of those jobs. But as you make that journey, what do you want to exit? What are those skill sets you want to exit that job with? And so if you start to build this portfolio of experiences and you have the right education, then what you have to do is go to the right company. And you want to go to the company that's going to recognize and reward your work, whether you're diverse or otherwise. And so what you have to do is then you have to put in the work, you have to work hard to get the highest rating you can. And then here's the important part. Then you hold the company accountable for giving you the experiences that will walk you through to the C-suite. There is there's no foolproof method. You got to be good and you got to be lucky. But if you want to improve your chances, right, of getting to the C-suite, I've always defined success as when opportunity and preparation meet. Mm-hmm. And so for me, that opportunity and that preparation met in Chicago when I met Jack Welch six years into the company and had an opportunity to talk to him. I was the global media manager. So I was a marketing person with global responsibilities with zero direct reports. But that happened chance that, that, that we met in Chicago and it changed my career because I had an opportunity to talk to him about the opportunities that I was driving in the most profitable product in the company which was polycarbonate, which was Lexan at the time that was going, I'm going to date myself here. It was going into DVDs and CDs. <laughs> and we were talking about that technology. And from that meeting, I got an opportunity to then go to Fairfield, Connecticut to have a dinner, a small dinner with him and 13 other people that were a lot more senior than me. And then he started a mentor mentee program. And so all of a sudden the assignments I was getting were a lot different. People wanting to mentor me. All of those things happen because opportunity and preparation came together. And you're never going to know when that opportunity is going to present itself. So now what? You always have to be prepared. And so, you know, people have, oh, you got to do 2X, everybody up. You know, that's a distraction. Be prepared. Are you prepared for the meeting? When you sit down with your boss to do your annual review, do you have a pen and paper? Do you sit down and you show your boss that you're really interested in talking to them about, hey, here's some things that I think I'm good at. Here's some things I need to work on. 
if you were to write your annual review of how you would like it to look at the end of the year, if you wrote that on January 1st, what would that look like, right? So, so how much time and effort do you want to put into this, right? Without any guarantees, right? None of this is guaranteed, but you're going to have to put in the work. And so if you're willing to put in the work, people will notice that. And the company that you're at, is not giving you that shot, right? They keep kicking that can down the road. Oh, the next time, oh, we just filled that role. Oh, you know, hey, you were you were right there, but I need you to work on these two or three things. There's plenty of places that you can go and say, look, I'm going to go to a company that recognizes and rewards these types of experiences. And those are transferable. What your title is at a particular company may or may not transfer, but those experiences can never be taken from you. And if you learn from all of those experiences, um, then you're going to be in a great spot. I took a lot of heat. I was sitting on a panel once and I took a lot of heat, Jackie, for this one. I said, I've never, I've never failed. And you, oh, it was just, you know, it, it just, it just lit up like a Christmas. You know, who is this guy I think he is and blah, blah. And so for me, I said, failure is if you don't learn from the experiences. I said, I've done a lot of things that didn't work out as planned. <laughs> and I've missed budgets. But learning from those experiences, right, helped me not make the same mistake. Yeah. And so to me, failure is when you've continuously made that mistake and you didn't learn from it, right? Mm -hmm. And you may, and what you oftentimes people will run from a mistake, meaning they'll just go to another company and that's not the answer. So for me, failure is if you don't, if you don't, uh, if you don't learn from that mistake, and then what you have to do is you have to, you have to figure out how to how to reverse that energy and say, look, I don't I don't want to make that mistake again. Mm -hmm. And so let me learn from that. Yeah. So yeah, that's fantastic. I really love, again, a lot of things that you said, Clarence, and, and one that really stood out is is not chasing the title but really looking for those different experiences, which is outstanding because that's just going to make you a very well-rounded individual and make you even more um, attractive for new opportunities. So Clarence, we're going to shift gears for a minute here and then we're going to finish up shortly. I'm going to ask you a few fun questions and I just want you to respond with the first thing that comes to mind. Are you ready? Oh, okay. Let's go. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. First one. It's the easy one. If you had to pick a new name for yourself, what would it be? Oh, man. <laughs> a new name for myself. Um, um, Spencer. What would, what would it be? It would be Spencer. Spencer. Okay. I actually know and, Spencer. And, and, <laughs> well, Spencer. And, and the reason why, because, you know, we, um, um, Spencer was uh, my wife's um, poodle that we bought on her 40th birthday right and it was and she insists that was the best gift ever and it's just it's just it's just great memories around him as a pet him as a dog he he we bought him here in um um in the back road somewhere of north carolina he made the trips from here to chicago to minnesota oh wow to canada he did the whole trip and then unfortunately he passed away in 2020 but he made it back here to Charlotte. So, oh, okay. <laughs> okay so, so Spencer. All right. Next one. If you could have any superpower, what would you choose? Mind reading. Mind Please. reading. Oh, wow. You want to go, oh, man. <laughs> Are you sure about that one? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. And last one. What song do you have to sing along with every time you hear it? Ooh. Um, this is almost blasphemy because, you know, I'm from California, uh, but the Jay-Z Empire State of Mind with him and uh, oh. you know, <laughs> New Alicia York. Peace, that yeah, the New York one, <laughs> right? So, it's on the playlist, <laughs> right? And, and it has all the right hooks in it. I mean, it's just, that's one of my all-time favorites. Oh, okay, <laughs> cool. All right, just a couple more questions, Clarence, and then we're going to, to wrap up. So at your current level, how do you continue to develop yourself? You know, I spend, um, I spend a lot of time with, I'll call them the junior talent. I, I don't know what else to call them. So I'll go back to that transition from the industrial side of the firm to the capital side of the firm. So when I moved from Charlotte, moved to Montreal, it was my first really senior vice president role leading an organization out of Canada. 
I had never done a deal. And so I had never, I had never gone through credit training. Now, look, having spent the last 17 years or so looking at deals and going through deals and becoming a licensed banker and all of those things, right? You get that over time. Um, but many folks that have started their banking careers went through formal banker um, training. And so when I moved into the job in Montreal, I quickly figured out that the, the analysts, the more junior people were the ones that were, again, I was a businessman. I could go through a balance sheet. I, I could look at all the financials, but putting that deal together to make a proposal for a client, that was done by the analyst um, level. And so I spent, Jackie, a tremendous amount of time learning the business from that crowd. And okay. here's what was interesting. They were thrilled to death. Somebody as senior as me was spending time with them. And I was thrilled to death. They were spending time with me, <laughs> right, teaching me the business. So when you start to go back to this mentor, mentee, you know, mentors doesn't necessarily mean they're more senior than you. Mm-hmm. You're, you're, when I say run the gamut and outside of your company, it should come through all phases. So those 75 analysts, um, that I talked to the other day, when I tell them, hey, send me a note and, and let me know how you're doing, that to me is the lifeblood and the future of the company and staying connected to that group, um, I think is a, is a way to keep fresh ideas and keep yourself fresh and on cutting edge. That's awesome. And I'm sure they really appreciated you, you know, really showing up and, and saying, hey, I, I need to learn from you guys, because I'm yeah. sure that you know, they, they were probably surprised that someone at your level was willing to, to say that. Oh, I think that's and, awesome. Can, and I, can I put one other plug in? And this is this is something as, as I think about, because I know our topic is, is diversity. Um, oftentimes when I go to these events or I talk to these populations, although uh, our firm is doing a nice job of, of uh, look, still plenty of work to do, but we're, there, there's a big focus on it. But oftentimes when I go to these meetings, there's not a lot of people that look like us, black and brown people in the audience. And typically when I put that invitation out there that says, keep in touch, send me a note. Doggone it, our black and brown people don't follow up oftentimes and it drives me crazy. Mm -hmm. So I would say, look, if a senior leader says it, they mean it. Mm -hmm. And so you should take them up on that because your colleagues are doing it. And so I can tell you the number of emails that I got from that Friday session from folks um, that are not minorities, right? They followed up, they understand networking, right? And so I just think this is one of those where if I have an opportunity for your listeners to educate us around that, you know, um, you know, there, there was an old leader at GE that talked about a say-do ratio, right? When you say it, you got to do it. And how often are you saying it and how often are you doing it? And people need to be able to count on you. So if someone's offering that up, you should certainly follow up with them. Okay. So you just shared it and that might be some of your advice, but what is the, the best advice Clarence, that you have ever been given or that you have read yourself? You know, um, one of my, I'll answer it this way. One of my favorite sayings is an African proverb. If you, if you, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. Mm-hmm. And so some of the best advice had been, and that first mentor I told you about that I met in California, um, there was a big job that was open. Um, I recommended somebody else that we both knew in the business. And I said, hey, that person would be great for that job. And his response was, and this was someone that was just flying through the company. And his response was, name one or two people that that person has helped. Mm. And he said, he said, Clarence, if you are successful and you continue to work hard, he says, at some point, you'll lead a team that's large enough that if it's all about I, I, I and me, 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 nobody's going to want to come work for you. And so if you focus on your team and focus on the talent and making t- sure your 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 uh, your team members know you're not a hoarding manager, those those managers that have high performers that will never want them to leave their team because right it, it would now they have to go through the work of replacing them which could impact their results. So as long as you're focused on the team and relationships matter cuz relationships mean trust, relationships mean dependability relationship would not let you know how, who has the right worth ethic, right? Relationship mean who has the right mentality to survive at certain companies. Those are all the things that are important. And so those relationships matter. So when you figure out that A, you're never really the boss and B, relationships matter. To me, that's probably the best advice you can work with. You can, you can walk away with. Yeah, that was a great question that was asked. Who have they helped? That's awesome. So 
Clarence, what's your what's your your greatest wish for 2021? You know, that one's easy. It's 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 health. Right. Right now we're in the middle of this pandemic. Um, and and this is one where, you know, I think everyone took for granted the freedom that you had to travel, the freedom that you had yeah. to just to go to the grocery store, the freedom that you had um, uh, uh, of just doing the simple things, kids going to school. And so now that that's been disrupted, right, I think we all are taking a fresher look. And, and hopefully this is an opportunity for all of us to self-reflect and figure out a way to, one, be better people, um, um, treating each other with civility, how important that is. Uh, but your health is everything because if you don't have that, nothing else matters. And so for me, when I think about 2021, you know, um, getting our arms wrapped around this, this COVID-19 and then just being better people and better to our neighbors and better to our colleagues, to me, happiness and health, uh, it's critically important for now and in the future. Yeah, absolutely. And you're right. I think we all, you know, unfortunately took it for granted, you know, just the ability to you know, leave your house and go to a restaurant and, you know, just all of the, the little things that are so incredibly important that we probably took for granted that we can't do right now as easily as, as we used to be able to do for sure, or safely as we used to be able to do definitely. So just in closing, um, you have shared so many words of wisdom and, and recommendations and ideas tonight, Clarence, any final comments for our listeners and particularly for this one, you know, diverse individuals that are really looking to grow in their career and make it to the highest level possible. Any final comments? Yeah, I think the, um, the key is don't give up, right? So, you know, the, the key is oftentimes you'd look up and you'll say, hey, I don't see the representation that um, I'd like to see in a particular company or even places you shop, or, you know, pick, pick a venue. And so for me, if you give up, then you take yourself out of the game. And if you take yourself out of the game, then you can't make the changes. So everyone's counting on each other to be able to stay in the game and make the changes. And when you have the opportunity to do it, then pull the trigger. I can't tell you, oftentimes, again, my experience has been oftentimes diverse leaders are hesitant to pull the trigger on other diverse leaders thinking about what others may think, right? I'm not saying lower the standard. There's no reason to do it but you have to work. You have to work to find the talent. It's out there. And so what we have to do is get as many people on the field and we got to get the right leaders in the job. Those are that, that are that have the courage to promote other minorities, that have the courage to have tough conversations, to have the courage to make sure that when they see something, they say something and they hold everybody accountable to the same standard. If we do those things, you know, it's going to take time. We didn't get here overnight. But if we do those things, right, we have a better chance at really truly making a difference. Well, Clarence, thank you so much for spending your, your time with me today. I really appreciate it. Again, I, you had so many great comments. You've had great success. It's very clear why. Um, you just really are a star individual. And I just really want to say thank you, Clarence, for your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Happy to do it.